Today on Peace Talks Radio, a special book edition that brings together authors of books that we think contribute to the broader conversation about peacemaking. We'll talk with John Deere, internationally known peacemaker, organizer, lecturer, and author of the book, The Nonviolent Life. And I just invite you to people to look within from the perspective of violence and nonviolence. And I submit you will find different levels, even low-grade levels, of violence within. Also, Harvard-trained positive thinking researcher Sean Aker on his 2013 book, Before Happiness. I will worry only in proportion to the likelihood of the event. That means if I think that there's a 1% chance that this worry could actually come to pass, I'm only going to spend 1% of my time worrying about it. And we'll explore an ebook for young people that helps them understand and appreciate multiculturalism, cooperation, forgiveness, and more. She lives in a clam, I think, doesn't she? She um, sleeps in a clam. Thank you for clarifying that for me. All today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how to resolve conflict with others in our homes, schools, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. This is one of our occasional episodes that brings together authors of books that we think contribute to the broader conversation about peacemaking. Later, a new ebook for young people that helps them understand and appreciate multiculturalism, cooperation, forgiveness, and more. And also a conversation with positive thinking researcher and TED Talk star Sean Aker, on his 2013 book, Before Happiness. But first we talk with John Deere, an internationally known peacemaker, organizer, lecturer, and author or editor of more than 30 books, mostly about peacemaking, including 2013's The Nonviolent Life. John Deere was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Desmond Tutu some years back, and our conversation with John Deere started with a story involving Desmond Tutu, the Dalai Lama, and about 20 other famous peacemakers from around the world, who'd gathered for a special event in Colorado a few years back. So we're at this place earlier in the green room, and the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop Tutu are sitting on the couch, and the rest of us are sitting in a big circle, and we're making small talk. And the Dalai Lama says in a very loud voice to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, Tutu, you're driving us crazy. You've got the biggest mouth in the world, and the whole world hates you, and everybody wants to kill you, and someone should, and it might as well be me. And with that, he throws himself on Desmond Tutu, grabs him by the neck and starts strangling him. And then Tutu falls over with his tongue hanging out. And everybody in the circle, we just stop. We're horrified. This all happened very quick. We're looking at them. And with that, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu fall on the floor, backs on the floor, feet up in the air. They're grabbing their stomachs. Their eyes are closed. They're rocking. They're both of them rocking back and forth. They're laughing so loud that there's no sound coming out and there's tears rolling down. And just then, because this was out of the movies, a guy walked in and said, you're on. (laughs) And they stand up, brush themselves off, and walk out and spoke to like 15,000 people. And it was the Dalai Lama and Tutu and all the other prestigious peacemakers talking about peace. And I said to myself, I want to be like that. I don't want to be an an angry activist. I don't want to be a depressed or despairing activist. I want to be a peacemaker. And what we need are committed peacemakers for the rest of their lives, like the Dalai Lama and Tutu. There in my new book, The Nonviolent Life, 
Jesus gives instructions on the emotional life of peace and nonviolence, which nobody's taken seriously except for the, these great people. Certainly us ordinary activists don't. So we're angry and we're afraid. Jesus says, don't be angry and don't be afraid. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But he recommends grief and joy. Now, there's nobody grieving more than Archbishop Tutu. And there's nobody more joyful that I know than Archbishop Tutu. You see that in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the Dalai Lama too. And that's what I've learned from them and so many other great peacemakers. They said Martin Luther King was like that, a very funny guy and a guy who wept. But he's not an angry person and he's committed for the rest of his life. And that's what I want and that's why I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. How can we be activists working for a world without war and be like Tutu and the Dalai Lama well, then we have to be cultivating joy and we have to practice grieving for all the people who are dying. That's different than anger and fear, and that's what I'm trying to work on. All right, I have to ask you, is there a peacemaker you have your eye on that you're going to take down in a tickling match or something? <laughs> <laughs> no. You can get My friends are very funny, and the great peacemakers I know are very funny people. Mm-hmm. And I think you need a lot of humor to survive. So you break up your book, your blueprint for leading the nonviolent life into three major sections. Practicing nonviolence toward ourselves, practicing nonviolence to others, all creatures and creation, and then joining nonviolent movements actively. So let's slow these down a little bit and talk about each in different uh, parts. Most listening might say, well, I'm not violent to myself or others. What are ways that people are violent to themselves and others that you, know, you wouldn't think of as being violent that in your view are important for us to work on or possible for us to work on yeah. that would, would help the scene? The first part is you ask, what's going on inside you? Right. And I like what the great Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh says, look deeply within. And I just invite you to people to look within at from the perspective of violence and nonviolence. And I submit you will find, especially as Americans, different levels, even low-grade levels of violence within. We're not taught to love ourselves or to be nonviolent to yourself. And you can say, uh, well, you know, we're all doing these thoughts in the middle of our, you know, our, these tapes run in our minds. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then you put yourself down or you beat yourself up a second or a third or fourth time. That's what I'm looking at. And it can go really deep for some people. So then the question is, what does it mean to be more and more nonviolent to yourself? Taking care of yourself, not hurting yourself, not putting yourself down, taking care of your body, you know, not getting caught up in all the horrible media imagery or terrible TV shows or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and so really, really cultivating peace interiorly and, and then we can explore the spirituality of peace and nonviolence, that we might really have a spirit of peace and nonviolence. If we want to be peacemakers who are making a more peaceful, nonviolent world, we have to practice that within our own souls and lives. I think a deeper question is about getting better. And I think all the major religions, to me, they're all about nonviolence. They all are about the life of peace. They all are about the nonviolent life. Say, we're already good yeah. and peaceful as we are. We actually, the problem is that we just got beat up when we were younger and we internalized the world's violence. 
So if we can just free ourselves from that and be who we already are. Yes. One therapist put it to me this way. He said, you being you is just right. It's beautiful. You cite Gandhi, Jesus, other peace leaders as examples of angerlessness uh, and anger being something that I think some of us feel entitled to somehow. Uh, Talk a little bit from your book, The Nonviolent Life, how we might get there practically. How can we dance with that emotion of anger? These are very deep waters, and I know everybody in the United States thinks I'm wrong. But I actually am just quoting Jesus on this one. So that's why – and Gandhi, by the way. And um, they were both very clear on this point. And so after – I've been teaching the Summer on the Mount for now for about 10 years around the country – and I thought, well, I'm going to start reflecting and talking about that more because all the activists I know, we're all angry. And most Americans are so angry. What's going on? And is it helping us? Is it making us happier? Is it making the world more peaceful? I don't think so. And here we just had that story of the Dalai Lama and Tutu. They're in a different realm. And again, all the great peacemakers, I find them not to be angry people. So... So what the heck does all of that mean? It goes against everything in modern psychology. Anger is a neutral emotion and you just shouldn't use that energy to do something violent. You channel it to some positive good. Okay. Or you could say anger comes because you've been hurt. Somebody hurt you and you have a, you're wounded and it leads to the emotion of anger. Well, after a lifetime of being hurt, we're angry people, or then you bring in Vietnam or something. Well, it's the same thing about this interior life of nonviolence, uh, of looking, well, why am I angry? Oh, well, it's just yesterday this event happened. And, and so you have these little moments, and they're very teaching, teach, teachable moments, is mm-hmm. that a phrase, yeah. about what's going on inside you. Right. Is there a way, I'm not a therapist, but to, all of this is so helpful that to be aware of that whatever triggers our violence, and so we don't get triggered anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, how dare I say such a thing? But it's in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say, don't even get angry. Who quotes that? <laughs> uh, he might be onto something. I think he's linking killing mm-hmm. to the interior issue, the f- anger which is going into that wound and your violence. And he, his take is... Use that moment to reflect on who's angry at you, who who have you hurt, and go and be reconciled. So that's an interesting thing. Gandhi comes along and professes a vow of nonviolence and fearlessness and tries to practice his, practice his clumsy word, angerlessness. Mm-hmm. And the day before he was killed, he gave that incredible interview and he said, uh, the greatest thing I've done is to conserve my anger. And to channel it towards the movement. And if those who knew him, and I have really studied him, uh, just find him, you know, like the Maharishi with the Beatles, giggling, laughing all the time. And he's bringing down the British Empire. John Deere is our guest. He's the author of The Nonviolent Life. Uh, Part two of the three-part nonviolent life is nonviolence toward others. Uh, And you say in the book, Faced with Evil, uh, at first there seemed to be two choices, run away and do nothing, or stay put and use violence. But you say the great peacemakers model a third approach, something that you might call active nonviolence. This third way 
whether you're talking from Jesus to Gandhi to King, is a whole methodology. And I invite people to read about nonviolence, study the great books, get training in it so that we can be teachers of nonviolence. You don't run away. You stand your ground. But you don't use the means of a violence that your opponent is threatening with you. So you're using a different means, which is nonviolence. Okay, that's all. If you, if you think about that, that's really scary right there. Someone's threatening you. You're not going to run away. You're going to say, you're going to call on all the creativity of nonviolence. Nonviolence is infinitely creative in our basic humanity and say, hey, what's wrong? And engage yeah. in a human exchange. Look the person in the eye mm-hmm. and they um, can be disarmed to right. the point of putting a weapon down and saying, you don't, don't hurt me. What's going on? And then, and then you become friends. Now, I've experienced that. Yes. There's a story in the book where you're at a protest march and someone approaches you yeah, with was, a very violent speech. It was a month, a month after September 11th. We were at a protest in Union Square in New York City. Daniel Bergen was standing next to me. We were holding our peace sign. Million people milling around us, and this guy came, came uh, approached me, a young man who looked like he was in the military, and he said, what would you do if I pulled out a knife and killed you right now in front of your friends? He came up to me and said that, and everybody stepped back, and we thought he might do that. Now, that's happened to me many times. <laughs> Church people threaten to kill me. That's what's really <laughs> scary. Uh, a person, passerby, I'm used to. It's when church people threaten me. That's what throws me off, of course. <laughs> so I wasn't phased because I'm used to this now. But what am I going to do? If I start yelling at him or I say, if I, well, I got a knife too. Well, then he's going to pull out a knife and kill me. This act of violence doesn't work. That's nobody, nobody, nobody's saying this. Violence in response to violence always leads to further violence. It's a never-ending downward spiral. Gandhi says we break the spiral of violence by responding nonviolently. You remain calm. And that only happens if you're really doing your inner work, by the way and centered, and you're trying to be like Thich Nhat Hanh, centered in peace. So I took a deep breath, and I said, well, if you did that, I guess I'd be dead, and I'd go to heaven, and I'd be with Jesus and Mary, and live forever in paradise. You, on the other hand, would be arrested and charged with my murder, and probably face execution on death row, and all my friends and I would feel really sorry for you. Were you able to say it that calm? Yeah, I said it just <laughs> like that to him. And... Uh, he was utterly shocked. So was Daniel Berrigan and my friends. And everybody stepped back. And he just put his hands down. He's like so disappointed because mm-hmm. I'm not engaging him. That's exactly the point of no minds. Right. I wrote more about it because he actually went over and talked to another friend from the Catholic worker who then began to speak about our peace vigil with Afghanistan. And they had a peaceful – he was so disarmed. And he came back and apologized to me. So this includes, in your book, saying includes owning no guns, no instruments of violence. Um, but a big riddle for people is this notion of protection. Yeah. Right? Um, like they'd say, I have kids in my house. I live yeah. in a neighborhood where six houses down, an armed burglar came in, threatened yeah. a family. Yeah. I can't buy practicing nonviolence if my kid's safety is at stake. Someone breaks into my house at night, and I'm going to shoot them before they kill me or them. Or does a police officer practice nonviolence of a shooter is in a schoolyard with a rifle? Again, Paul, I don't see any story where violence has helped. And it seems to me most of the tens of thousands of shootings in the United States are relatives. Often accidental shootings. You always read about a father 
shot his kid by mistake. Mm-hmm. How could you have a gun with kids around the house? That's insanity. Yeah. But nonviolence is not passivity. We're not talking about sitting around and doing nothing. So in that instance, if you live in an inner city area that's very crime-ridden and you do nothing about that, then I think you're participating in this culture of violence. Right. No, you get involved in forming a community organization and you yeah. teach nonviolence. Upstream. And, and, and that's working. People yeah. are doing – People, I have good friends in Chicago who are, who are transforming block by block. Uh, this summer, the, their neighborhoods where all so many killings have been going on. Uh, everything has to be examined from a nonviolent perspective. But I do promise you, things can move in a better direction. But it is, requires work, re, uh, real inner work mm-hmm. every the, day. And then the last piece of your three-pronged nonviolent life in your book is joining the global uh, movement for peace. So let's say a little bit more about, I guess, what you would consider the personal responsibility to take it even beyond the circles that you find yourselves in. Well, you know, all I would say is that uh, I think everybody now, given the state of the world, has to be somehow involved in peace and justice work through the methods of nonviolence that we've been talking about. And that's a very exciting and liberating thing. Now, you do, I love what Oscar Romero said the day he was killed. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Pick some cause, mm-hmm. whatever stirs Get involved in the environment, Afghanistan war, immigration, poverty, ending the death penalty, gun violence. Get involved in, uh, in an issue. I hope everybody listening is, in, is involved. But if you're not, get involved. And I'm not sure about the Internet. I think it needs to be you know, going to a meeting, your local meeting, joining your local peace and justice group or starting a group and then being part of some public action. And I use that word deliberately. Forgive me for being a name dropper, but I got that from Cesar Chavez who said to me, tell everybody to – uh, get involved in public action for justice and peace. I thought that was really helpful too. I think it's the most life-giving thing is to be involved in some struggle for justice and peace and to do so for the rest of your lives. John Deere is author of many books on peacemaking, including 2013's The Nonviolent Life. For much more from our visit with John Deere, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and hear the original complete interview. Next on this special book edition of Peace Talks Radio, Ways to Become a Positive Genius with Sean Aker, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to a special book edition of Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. 
I'm Paul Ingalls, and next we talk with Harvard-trained researcher Sean Aker, known for his popular TED Talk and book called The Happiness Advantage. We caught up with Sean at the 2013 Las Vegas conference to talk about his 2013 book, Before Happiness, The Five Hidden Keys to Achieving Success, Spreading Happiness, and Sustaining Positive Change. I spent 12 years at Harvard, and one of the things that I noticed is that no matter how happy the students were getting into the school, about um, two to three weeks later, their brains stopped focusing upon the privilege of being there and even fully focused on their philosophy of physics. Their brains uh, begin to be scattered thinking about the competition, the workloads, the stresses that they experience. And 80% of these students report experiencing work debilitating depression, and a stunning number of them actually contemplate suicide. So what it made me start to realize was that, that success wasn't leading to the happiness that we thought it might. What we've started to realize is that the formula for happiness and success is backwards. That if we think we can work harder and then we'll be more successful and then we'll be happier, it turns out that formula doesn't work because every time we have a success, our brain just changes the goalpost of what success looks like. So if you get that higher sales target, if you get into the school you want to, if you lose 15 pounds, then your brain changes what success looks like and you push happiness out further. But if you reverse the formula, if we can find some way of being able to create positivity in the present, if we can change our mindset so that we develop deeper social connection, we perceive stresses as as challenges instead of as threats, if we raise our levels of optimism, it turns out all of our success rates rise dramatically. So it means that we can raise your success rates for the rest of your life and happiness will flatline. But if we raise your levels of happiness now in the present, our likelihood of making a better reality for us and for other people becomes significantly more likely. So in Before Happiness, your 2013 book, you begin with the notion that you just described, I think, that some people live in a reality in which happiness and success seem possible while others don't. And you propose then a goal to change people's reality to a positive reality. But you're careful to say this is not just blind optimism or hopeful visioning. You're right. Actually, I spoke to a, uh, a CEO of a large software company out in Northern California, and he drove me to the airport after one of my talks to talk about how we could cascade this research out throughout his entire organization. And while we were sitting in the car, when we first got in, he immediately started talking to me about his company, and he hadn't put on a seatbelt, and that bell was going off the entire time. And I I finally said, you don't wear seatbelts? And he said, no, I listened to your talk. I love your research. I'm an optimist. And I was like, oh, oh no, Uh (laughs) because that's not optimism. (laughs) You you can't accept that responsibility. (laughs) Exactly. You know, optimism is great for a lot of things, but it doesn't stop cars from hitting us and it doesn't stop reality from impinging upon us. That's irrational optimism. And it actually gives happiness and peace and optimism a bad name. Um, What we're looking for is we don't want to sugarcoat the present. We don't want to put on rose-colored glasses immediately because then we don't see any of the things that we need to start changing within our society, the things that we can do to be able to change ourselves and to change our families. But what we want actually is a realistic assessment of the present, both the good and the bad, because if you only see the bad, you're equally blind. But what we want is to maintain the belief that our individual behavior matters. Sean Aker, your Before Happiness book has five main sections and steps that help people do this, cultivate their positive genius in an active way. First, you say choosing 
the most valuable reality from multiple choices is a great first step. The human brain can can process about 40 bits of information per second, which is incredibly fast. The only problem is your brain receives 11 million pieces of information per second from all of your nerve endings. So really what we do is we pick and choose a few facts to attend to, and then we architect an entire reality around those facts. Those facts, the ones we choose to focus upon, not only become our reality, they predict our levels of happiness, our optimism, our peace, our business outcomes, and educational outcomes. Part of what we want people to realize is that reality is not necessarily fixed, and that by changing what we're focusing upon, we can change the way that we not only can perceive reality, but but change our behavior within it. For example, I just completed a large study with UBS in collaboration with two researchers from Yale University, Ali Crum and Peter Salovey. And we found if we could change your mindset about stress, get you to perceive it as enhancing instead of just as debilitating, which is how we teach people normally, by changing people's reality about stress, we actually saw a 23% drop in health-related symptoms, headaches, backaches, and fatigue at work, and nearly a 30% increase in the energy and productivity people felt in the work that they were doing. What that means is stress might be inevitable. It's a part of our reality, but the way that we choose to perceive it actually changes the way it affects our bodies. So part of what we're doing is if I can choose to view stress as enhancing or as a threat, by choosing the reality in which stress is enhancing, I actually get that effect upon my body. And you talk about uh, actively uh, pursuing other vantage points and uh, bringing in diversity as a means of recognizing other possibilities and, and, and some steps like that, don't you? Yes, this is one of the things I, I learned from the Divinity School before getting into this positive psychology research is what we found is that oftentimes when people think about things like their, their email inbox or dishes in the sink, they normally think um, for the inbox that it's overwhelming and overflowing, and that's where they stop or the dishes in the sink are a chore or hateful or soul draining. But what we have people to do is do something called the advantage points technique, where we have people for one minute try and think of all the descriptors they could possibly think of for that external event. So they get one point for each of the negative uh, descriptors and three points for the positive ones. What we find is that people start with dishes in the sink, for example, as you know, chore and hateful and soul draining. But it, about halfway through, they start saying things like an opportunity to show love to my spouse or a moment to feel productive or is a moment to relax and meditate with my hands in warm water. And what they found was that when people focused upon those positive aspects of reality, noticing that there were multiple vantage points, it turns out the energy we feel while doing those tasks, our likelihood of accomplishing those tasks rise significantly. Sean, in this chapter, you uh, tell a story about the 900-foot hill as a way of encouraging people to think about shaping a positive reality. Could you tell that story? Sure. It's actually at the heart of becoming a positive genius. In the book, I described these two soldiers that were looking up at a hill. And what was incredible, this is why this research is so phenomenal. When one of the soldiers in a negative state, instead of seeing a 600-foot hill, their brain shows them a picture of a 900-foot hill. They actually perceive a hill that's much taller than the person who's actually accurately viewing it. So the whole goal of this information is how can we get people to become that positive genius, to continually architect positive realities based upon true facts around them. Your second major point is encouraging folks to map what you call meaning markers 
and then picking the best route to reach goals. But say a little bit more about what you mean by a, a meaning marker that can be helpful in this process. What we found is that oftentimes people have such a narrow view of what meaning is within their life. For example, I just spoke with somebody earlier this week who was talking about how um, he struggles because he only sees doing his work, getting doing sales calls as being productive and everything else actually gets in the way of him being productive. In that case, he has one meaning marker as he's mapping a picture of reality, and that's the sales. But if sales are not going well, it turns out his entire levels of happiness drop. His energy levels drop. He feels no peace within his life. What we encourage people to do is to diversify their meaning portfolio, to use a a financial analogy there. What we want people to do is to recognize and highlight how there are multiple aspects of meaning in their life and use those markers to determine whether or not they're feeling productive or successful during the day. So that could be simple things like, am I growing in my meditation practice? Am I uh, connecting deeper with my spouse? Am I finding ways of teaching things to my children today? So if what we found is that the more broadly you could expand what you perceive to be meaning in your, your life, you actually find that you feel more engagement because that meaning starts to spread out to every aspect of your life, making even your commute meaningful because it's now giving you the money to be able to take care of your kids, which means you're educating them and feeling closer to them. It's funny because some of us would find it easier to apply that to our kids to say when they come home, well, what was the best part of your day? But it's harder to apply it to ourselves as adults, I think. You're absolutely right. As soon as I talk to people about a lot of this research, the first thing they think about is their children and how they're going to make them do some of these positive habits. And then they're thinking about all the people that they wish were hearing the talk um, that were not there (laughs) because they're like, wow, that person really needs it. And what we realize is that the... The person we can change the most is ourselves. And if we actually really care about our children's uh, uh, optimism levels or their positivity or the people around us, the easiest way to impact those is to not only model the behavior, but to ramp up our own levels of positivity and peace that we feel as well. Sean Aker, another one of your major sections in the Before Happiness book is this idea of, you title it Finding the X Spot, which you explain as a marathon term. This is one of my favorite pieces of research from the book. Um, I We found that 26.1 miles into a marathon, people actually speed up. And it's because they see the finish line. And as they see the finish line, their brain drops all these neurochemical accelerants into their system, which speed us up. It actually moves us forward, even in fatigue state. What if we could get people to experience these accelerants all along the process in their life as they're moving to greater levels of happiness and success within their personal lives and and their professional lives? Um, And this research was originally done by this guy named Clark Cole, who found that rats at the end uh, end of a maze run much faster than they do at the beginning. Our brain accelerates towards goals the more progress we perceive. So one of my favorite studies was done on coffee cards, where if you buy 10 cups of coffee, you get a free coffee. They found in a separate study where if you give somebody um, a card where they have to buy 12 cups of coffee, but they get the first two stamps for free, it turns out they accelerate much faster to buying that free cup of coffee. And the reason is because they're already one-sixth the way towards their goal. 
If we can highlight ways that people have had progress in their life, they speed toward the, towards those goals. And this is something I think is incredibly important for people as we try to create more positive change within this world. Because oftentimes, as we think about positive change, we immediately start with task lists and resolutions for things we want to change about the future. And we forget about how much progress we've made. Now, whenever I make daily lists for the day, I actually make and write down things on the list that I've already accomplished during that day. So I can check those off. My brain sees the progress and they accelerate towards the rest of the list. When I set New Year's resolutions, I actually write down first on a separate column, all the things I was successful for in the previous year. And if we highlight people's successes and addiction recovery programs as children are starting school, what we find is that their likelihood of making positive change skyrockets. Sean, uh, another big important part of Before Happiness uh, that I can relate to a lot is your section on canceling the noise. Um, I mean, those of us that work in the media have to really pay attention to this. And we also are very familiar with the term signal-to-noise ratio. That's right. For people who are not uh, familiar with signal-to-noise ratio, what that's an indication of is that noise is any information in our life that over uh, that floods the brain so that we are distracted from moving forward, uh, we don't perceive the right uh, path to success, anything that prevents us from actually being able to move forward. Um, noise trades off with signal. Signal is any information that could actually move us forward that's adaptive. So what we've been suggesting for people is that what we've been finding is we've been developing a form of cultural attention deficit disorder in our modern world where we're constantly bombarded by stimuli. But we found that as we're trying to learn new skill sets, if you don't have a period of quiet for the, for the brain to think through and process the information you just learned, you actually don't retain it. We feel lower levels of social connection. We don't enjoy those moments of meaning that we had within our life. And so part of what we've been having people do is just do a simple experiment called the 5% experiment. And what we have them do is just try and decrease the amount of noise in their life by 5%. Now, noise is different for everyone, but some people, that means that they turn off the radio for the first five minutes that they get into a car, or they have a period of a couple hours during the week that they know that they're not going to look at their phones or have the television on. They're just going to spend time with their children. Some people decide to change the way that they uh, listen to or watch the news um, so that they are on, uh, do it online where they can pick the stories that they want to uh, bring into their brain instead of having it picked for them. And each one of those moments, what we're having people do is just quiet their brain for a little bit. And in doing so, every time you decrease noise, you increase the likelihood of your brain being able to process that signal again. So one of the very simple things that we've that we've seen a lot of success with is just having people for two minutes a day take, we did this at Google actually, take their hands off of their keyboard for two minutes a day and just watch their breath go in and out. Just simple attention uh, training, uh, very similar to meditation. And what we found was that when individuals did this, not only did their accuracy rates improve, but their stress level dropped, their energy at work improved, the people around them, stress levels dropped as well. So what makes this exciting is that we can actually decrease the noise. And when we do it, our success rates rise. When you write about canceling the noise, I was particularly intrigued with the um, way you suggest that people evaluate worry because I find that thoughts about negative events can really paralyze folks. There's both external noise and there's internal noise. Internal noise can be something like worry, where if I believe that I could be a failure or believe that my behavior doesn't matter, that thought actually cancels out me being able to move forward. 
So just like noise-canceling headphones create opposite noise patterns to neutralize the sounds that are coming in from a plane engine, we can create the same thing with our brains, actually creating noise-canceling brains by creating noise patterns that are opposite to the worry that we feel. So one of the things that we suggest with people who are experiencing high levels of worry and even moderate levels of worry as well, I try to do this with my, within my own life, is we had them think of one of these three patterns. Um, one of them was, I will worry only in proportion to the likelihood of the event. That means if I think that there's a 1% chance that this worry could actually come to, uh, come to pass, I'm only going to spend 1% of my time worrying about it, not 99% of my day worrying about it. Another one is, I will not equate worrying with love. So as we're feeling those worrying ideas, we think to ourselves, worrying actually does not make me more loving. It actually prevents me from actually connecting more deeply to that person, trusting that that person's going to be fine, and thinking about ways in which our behavior matters. And the final one is I will not ruin 10,000 days to be right on one. What we find is that oftentimes pessimists become validated. And when we worry, we val- we're validated occasionally. But then there's lots of days when it turns out that worry was completely useless. What happens is when it's validated, we then start worrying even more. What we found is that all these false negatives that we have within our life cause us to feel stresses, even though the likelihood of the event was extremely small. And finally, you invite people to, I don't know, spread the good news a bit, creating positive inception by transferring a positive mindset to others. Uh, Just a couple of the examples you use. Oh, this is actually probably one of the most important parts of the book because it's not just about us. It's about how once we've created a positive reality, how do we transfer it to other people? I love that the movie Inception. Uh, in the movie, they are able to plant a single idea in someone else's brain, and it actually ends up altering their entire reality. What we've been looking for is once you've got a positive reality, how do you get other people around you to believe that their behavior matters as well and to see that positivity matters? One of the hospital groups that we were working with down in Louisiana, we got them to do something uh, where as they walked down the hallway, they would do something that we saw at the Ritz-Carlton, which is the employees there are trained within 10 feet to make eye contact and smile with anyone within a hallway. And within five feet, they're trained to say hello which is actually really fun to do, to go in and out of those spheres with people at a Ritz-Carlton to get them to smile or say hello to you, even if you're not (laughs) not staying there. But we took this idea down to the hospitals and tried to get people to change the way that they thought about a place where people go when they're sick or dying. And what we found was that not only were the doctors and the nurses and the staff starting to do this, where the, the social script was changing, where everyone was making eye contact and smiling after they were trained to do this, but the patients were picking it up. They were starting to smile as well. They were actually initiating contact. And what we found is when, as, when individuals were doing this, we found that, uh, that the number of unique patient visits to the hospital increased, the likelihood of patients to refer the care based upon the quality of care they, they received skyrocketed, and the doctor's happiness level was the highest uh, that they had had in the entire hospital chain. So what this is an indication of is a single one-second behavioral change could actually change the realities in a hallway, in a hospital, and the way that we view the world. And my question is, what if we had more than one second with you? What if we could change a little bit more of your life to create that type of positive change? One of the most powerful moments of positive change occurs within the first 10 seconds of an interaction with the person. Um, my wife is a positive psychology researcher. Her name is Michelle Gielen, and she studies something called power leads. And power leads are when somebody asks you how your day is going or the first moment you're on a phone call, you actually have a huge opportunity to shift the entire social script for that conversation. 
most of us start with things like, oh, I'm busy, or I'm stressed, or I'm tired, or I'm sick. And the entire conversation has now has a tone. It's actually been influenced by that first statement. Within that power lead, instead of starting with something that's negative or neutral as we respond to how are you doing or the first thing that we say on a phone call, instead we start with something positive, like things are going great, or I had the opportunity to sit down with my daughter today for breakfast, or I'm so grateful that it's it's so nice outside, or I'm so grateful I get to see you today. Those, as seemingly small as they are, change the social script and allow you to be the one who's setting the entire script for the rest of the conversation. And what we found is from there, positive inception can absolutely flow. Sean Aker wrote The Happiness Advantage and 2013's Before Happiness. He spoke to us while at a conference in Las Vegas, Nevada in 2013. Once again, we recorded much more with Sean too, and I'll bet you'll find it useful and engaging. You can find the link to our complete interview at peacetalksradio.com. Next up, an ebook for young people that introduces us to a little girl who sleeps in a clam on the beach and winds up chasing some moon thieves. In a minute on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This time, a special book edition. And now, a book that you'll find downloadable online that was written by first-time author Alex Paramo of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and importantly, his young daughter, Marisol. It's called Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves. We gathered part of the team that put it all together in our studio, starting with author Alex Paramo. Well, you know, the story sort of came together organically, um, Marisol here, and I are friends with uh, two California-based musicians called the Moon Thieves. So that's the name of their band? That's the name of their band. <laughs> it's Keith Sanchez and the Moon Thieves. And so uh, they're nice guys. They come into town, and they stay with us. And Mari and Mato, Matias Pizarro, and Juan, Juan Carlos Ramirez are good friends, and they goof around. Mm-hmm. So, Mari, when I read about these guys in the book, they said that uh, one of them kept a hamster under his hat and one slept under the sink. Do the real guys do that? Mm, no. <laughs> no, they made that up, huh? Mm. But are they good guys? Yeah. Yeah. What do you like about them? Mm, I like the fact that they play music. Yeah. So, Alex, tell me a little bit more about why you wanted to do this. The The motivation was... Um, on the production side was the collaborative uh, effort, the collaborative nature of it. We all um, know talented musicians and artists, and I thought it would be a great idea to bring everyone together. And um, the impetus for that was working with people, and I think that's that's basically the future of our world. We we need to uh, work together to solve the many problems we have. And um, as far as the story itself, 
Uh, it's very multicultural. I'm from New York, which is a, a very multicultural city, obviously. And um, I, I was raised in an environment where I saw people from different countries. They were my best friends. And so I think uh, a lot of misunderstandings arise from the fact that people are sort of afraid of each other. Uh, if you're afraid of the person from another country, or even another part of the uh, of our country. So I thought it'd be a good idea to put it out there for kids, introduce them to concepts that, like multiculturalism on a global scale, to sort of uh, demystify, I guess, some of some of the places that are, are seen as uh, you know, far away or exotic in a negative sort of way. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, bringing up Marisol, uh, you have seen lots of kids' books. Right. So, I mean, what role do you think children's books can really have in helping parents parent um, get some of these messages across? I definitely believe that um, positive messages uh, starting at a young age, even before a child can read. For example, we we expose children to um, music from Mali and um, Bolivia and different places in the world. And so I think a parent can pick up a book, read it to their child, show them some illustrations and uh, that initial exposure, I think, is it's priceless. We're happy to have Audrey McNamara, who's the illustrator for Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves, here as well. Uh, Audrey, had you ever done any uh, children's literature illustration before? Yes, I had. What do you like about that genre, though? What do you like about uh, creating illustrations for those kinds of stories? It's an easy way for people to to bring their ideas to fruition, you know. Like, uh, I don't think everybody can write a novel, but a lot of people can write a, a small book, you know. So usually what I end up with is a private party who has, like, this little dream, you know. And and uh, it's cool. They Everybody's so excited. It's really fun. You know, the kids get excited. It's fun. What was special about this project for you? What was fun about it? Oh, I think what was more fun was just all the, the, the collaboration, you know, like all the different people and people I knew involved with it, you know, and and just everybody's enthusiasm. And then how do you connect with uh, the author, in this case, Alex? Um, well, I mean, I I definitely could tell that he was, that he, he was under the motivation of, you know, of his own daughter, and then thinking even farther towards, like, what would be beneficial for children at this point, you know, it, um, it, it seems like she has she has to face her fears, she has to take her responsibilities seriously, she has to respect her, her earth and the natural ways of things. There were there were there a lot of reasons to, to want to be a part of the project, you mm-hmm. know. It was a good it's a good idea, it's a good story that works. Each page has an audio playback bar that will start up a narration of what's on that page, what's written on that page, and it's backed up by music and sound effects so that families can read it plain, uh, or they can listen to the narration uh, themselves. So whatever place their youngster is on the reading continuum, they can still enjoy it, right? Right. And depending on uh, what format you're using, uh, for example, we have the uh, iPad mini and it leaves it off on the on the last place where you were where you were reading, so it, it's a little bit long. It's twenty five pages. Um, the really really uh, great thing about it, I think, is that uh, you can choose to play the audio, so the audio doesn't come on automatically. Mm-hmm. It's something that you, uh, the parent or the guardian teacher, will make a conscientious choice of playing, hitting hitting play. And I think that's important because a lot of times we just want to read the book to our, our kids. Yeah, sure. Well, let me hit play, though, on a couple of the first pages just so listeners can hear what uh, what it sounds like. At sunset, out of the mist, 
arose the mighty sea empress. On the horizon, where the sun meets the sea, the great sun king emerged from the waves to greet her. On this day, it was predestined that the moon and tides would entwine them forever. Over many centuries together, beneath the light of many moons, their love for one another grew. One spring morning, when the day was as long as the night, the sea empress surfaced from between the waves at dawn and tenderly placed a giant clam on the warm sand. Suddenly, under the warm gaze of the Sun King, the clam opened to reveal a gift from the sun and sea. As Princess Marisol cooed playfully, Alessa, a curious young sea otter, slowly crept towards the clam. Alessa the otter had been chosen to be Princess Marisol's protector. So they're just the first couple of pages from Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves, an e-book by Alex Paramo and his daughter Marisol, who are in the studios here with us. So Marisol, how old are you, by the way? Six and a half. Six and a half. All right. So Marisol, who is the Marisol in this story? Me. It's you. Uh-huh. How do we meet Marisol? Where does she live? By the beach. She lives in a clam, I think, doesn't she? She um, sleeps in a clam. Thank you for clarifying that for me. She sleeps in a clam and then lives on the beach. That's a pretty good life. And she's got a good friend, right? Yeah, it's a sea otter. A sea otter is her best friend. Okay. So the sea otter sees something kind of suspicious one night, right? That's sort of how the story starts. Yeah. What does he see? Um, the moon thieves playing their instruments and trying to catch the moon. Okay. All right. Now, since they're called the Moon Thieves, we can sort of guess what happens. And they're playing captivating music, right? Yeah. 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 And so I noticed that I think this is true in the, the chapter where you hear the word captivating. There's a lot of uh, highlighting of some of the words so that you can click on the word and get a little bit of information on it, right? That's right. That's uh, part of the educational component. If you uh, mouse over it, it actually gives you a little short definition right there. And then if you click on it, it takes you to uh, a student dictionary. Right. So, Marisol, so what else did you do to help with this book? Um, I helped pick, up the, pick out the colors, and I helped design the dresses. Uh, Audrey, how was it uh, getting Marisol's uh, consultation on your work? It was great. That's that's wonderful. I, I love that kind of feedback. I mean, how would I know she wanted a pink and purple shell? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Alex, you told me before that you think the book really does sort of set the table for conversations that uh, parents can have with their kids. What else do you think did you try to bring through this story or that you can imagine uh, families would uh, be able to explore with their kids. Uh, another theme uh, is environmental, the need to work together to uh, solve some of our environmental problems. For example, um, one of the vocabulary words uh, we used was tides and introducing children to how the moon affects tides. So if you take the moon away, then you know, it affects the tides, it affects the weather, it affects so many different things. And that, that can be taught metaphorically or you can 
you see it uh, in a straightforward manner with global warming. So I think having a conversation um, uh, that begins with personal responsibility and ends with uh, a co- the need for a collaborative uh, approach to, pro- to our problems. And one thing I stress to Marisol all the time is that we're all, we're all people, uh, we're, regardless where we're from. My family is from South America. Mari's a quarter Navajo, so her family's been here thousands of years, and uh, we all uh, we all uh, have feelings, have brothers and sisters, and we need to work together because we all live on the same planet. Yeah, yeah. You feel that way, Marisol? Yes. Yeah. What do you think it means to be peaceful? To be nice to other people. Because it's interesting in the Moon Thieves, you know, we sort of suggested that they think about stealing the Moon, but. When you catch up with the moon thieves in the story, it's not like they're bad people, right? You sort of forgive them, right? Yes. Even though the moon thieves, uh, in, a, in, a, in a normal format, they're considered the antagonist, right? Um, even though they stole the moon and then they created a little bit of havoc, uh, Marisol and the moon thieves worked together and they collaborated, they cooperated. Uh, the moon thieves were remorseful, but they wanted to make up for their mistake. And so they did work with Marisol. They went to where they had to go without giving away the story. And uh, they, they found a solution to a problem that they, they caused, but they helped solve it. And I think that's another important message to get across. So we all make mistakes. We're all human, but we work together. We've done programs on restorative justice on our series, and that's really what you're describing. Yeah, I think that's really <laughs> important because sometimes we get the idea that if someone does a wrong um, we banish them or, or, or unfortunately put them in prison. But if we can work with someone and if they're truly remorseful, I think uh, we all can uh, work towards a better day, I believe. Yeah, that's nice. So, Alex, let's talk about availability of uh, this book, Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves. How can people find it? Um, if you navigate to www.princessmarisolandthemoonthieves.com, spelling out and A-N-D, um, there's a website in English and Spanish. Um, we're working on translating uh, the ebook to uh, Navajo, Chinese, and um, I thought that was Portuguese. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's available there, and it's available for um, different formats. Whether you're using an iPad, an iPhone, it's available for the PC, uh, for your Apple computer, or for whatever tablet that you have. I guess there's an app for everything these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that it is bilingual, so when you buy the book, you can access either the uh, English or the Spanish version right away. That's right, and uh, one price gets you the English and Spanish version. We're re- really working actively toward getting it in the schools in Albuquerque, uh, in New York, and in L.A., so mm-hmm. that's, that's our focus. Now, Marisol, you're singing in the background, and I understand that you sing in the book. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And your voice is in the book, is that right? Yes. So you did the voice of Marisol. Mm-hmm. Well, let's listen to a page from the book where we hear Marisol's voice as Marisol in the book, Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves. The Moon Thieves apologized to Metzli, yet the moon simply gazed at the night sky with gray eyes. Princess Marisol said, You must return to the sky. But Metzli remained silent. Sing to him! exclaimed the moon thieves. I'm not sure that I can, Princess Marisol replied. Just then, Princess Marisol remembered what the wise Samara told her. When the time is right, you will find your voice. With her confidence now sparked, 
Princess Marisol began singing the song written on the scroll, while the moon thieves enthusiastically played their instruments. Up, up, go up. Up into space. Up, up, go up. Up into space. There you heard Marisol herself as herself, in a manner of speaking, in the book Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves. Alex Paramo is the author, along with his inspiration, his daughter Marisol is humming in the background here sweetly for us. And Christian Ariana is here, too, from San Francisco. Are you one of the Moon Thieves? Is that technically? No, I am one of the musicians <laughs> behind the scenes. Uh, good, uh, Matias and Juan Carlos are basically... Uh, the Moon Thieves, uh-huh. uh, but uh, I actually laid down some of the, the, the tracks for for um, the story, some of the music. I see. You know the Moon Thieves, but I think that you were independently uh, uh, responsible for uh, something on page 13, I'm told. Is that right? Or somewhere? Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. yes. I've actually um, recorded a section, kind of like a one-minute piece, uh, for uh, reflecting when the moon thieves are coming through South America and they're having a great time with the moon, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and the interesting the interesting thing about this is uh, Matias and I are, are good friends from from back for so many years, and as well as with Alex, uh, the author of the book, and uh, and so we've been communicating via phone, email, sending files. I was working in a studio in Las Vegas. Matias sent files from LA. Uh, and then Alex sent files from here, so we were kind. Of, it's 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 a big network, you know, network uh, among friends. Alex, um, I think a lot of people will want to experience the ebook, but probably will also ask the question: Is this heading toward a, a published book or a book, a hardcover or softcover book that they could also enjoy? We're definitely looking at uh, printing it in a traditional way. The publisher we're using, Community Publishing, um, emphasizes a local approach. So we're looking at local uh, printers here in Albuquerque, uh, but we're, we're definitely uh, moving in that direction. We're, we're looking at all different avenues. For a link to the ebook Princess Marisol and the Moon Thieves, and much more of this interview too, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com for more with all of our guests, our other authors, Sean Aker and John Deere, and links to their books. Also, partial transcripts, pictures, and other links are there as well. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. You'll also find links to all of the programs in our series going back to 2002. There you can hear the program streaming, download episodes, order CDs of many of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter, a free podcast, and it's where you can also make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program apart from your local public radio station. All at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also receive support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Support for good radio shows also comes from Embassy Suites Albuquerque Hotel and Spa, 
essentially located downtown Albuquerque All Suites Hotel, near the University of New Mexico and the Albuquerque Convention Center. Information at embassysuites.hilton.com. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.